Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. It's old-fashioned. It's... it's... I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo, and this is episode 58, an old little movie called Arsenic and Old Lace. I am joined by a special guest co-host tonight. Um, she will be the official second co-host of the episode. Uh, Tiffany was obviously the first for Clue. And let me introduce you to Mrs. Sarah D. And I'm not going to say your last name because I do not want to slaughter it. And Terrence messes up enough on this podcast. So, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's Dee Donatis. Uh, good, to, good to be here, James. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I'm excited uh, no problem. to talk about this movie. Yeah, um, we were trying to think of something that um, a movie that she would like to do and I would like to do, see if our chemistry is good. Because we might have some things planned for in the future that we've talked about. Maybe another podcast. It a totally different direction than this one because this one we cut up and have fun this one will be more serious so but that's not what this podcast is about we can go down a hundred different avenues there so uh, sarah let's go ahead and take away arsenic and old lace yes um great movie directed by frank capra written by julius j epstein and philip g epstein for the screenplay and then joseph kesserling actually wrote the stage play um the year it was released was september 23rd 1944 uh, but it was not. It was actually completed in 1942. The budget of this film, uh, the cost to actually make it was 1.12 million. They had a budget of two million dollars. Um, Frank actually um, talked about and was teased about being on a budget again, like back in the old days when he was making films uh, in his early career. Um, the box office earnings was uh, for the U.S. two million eight hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars. And foreign was $1,948,000. So they far exceeded um, what they spent. They, they made a lot of money on this. The technical specifications, uh, runtime was 1 hour, 58 minutes. The color was black and white. Sound mix was mono RCA sound system. Aspect ratio was 1.37 to 1. Film length was 12 reels. Negative format was 35 millimeters, and the cinematographic process... <laughs> <laughs> I knew you was going to get there again. <laughs> it's spherical. I wanted to make you say that, but I forgot. Um, and then the uh, printed film <laughs> format was uh, 35 millimeters. So, uh, easy for me to say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in regards to awards, this film should have been um, given a lot more... Uh, exposure than it was. Um, I have a. Um, it was. Um, what's the word? It was. It was put up for a um, international film critics award, but it did not win. And it was nominated. It was nominated. Forgive me. And then it was also nominated in 2013 uh, for best archival re-recording of an existing score. Uh, again, it did not win that one either. So very sad. <laughs> it was. I mean, this it was. It was very brilliantly done. Uh, the more I watch it, the more I love it, and I just really appreciate the the subtle nuances in the movie, in in some of the serious spots. I mean, it's we'll get there, but it was. It's just really well done. Uh, you want to talk about the cast? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, oh, do you want me to do it? I don't care. Whatever. Okay, no worries. Um, Cary Grant uh, was Mortimer Brewster. They did ask Bob Hope to do it. He could not get out of his contract he would have been perfect for it there were a couple other actors that were asked to be on there as well that i'll talk about later um josephine hall was abby brewster she was aunt abby brewster and then jean adair was aunt martha brewster both of those characters um abby and martha were allowed to leave the stage play 
and uh, record this for the movie. So they actually came off stage, did the film, and then went back. Raymond Massey was Jonathan Brewster. Peter Lohr was Dr. Herman Einstein. Priscilla Lane was Elaine Harper Brewster. John Alexander was Teddy Roosevelt Brewster, one of my favorites. Charge! Oh my gosh, he was, he was just, just a great, great actor. Um, Jack Carson was the officer Patrick O'Hara, who was another great character within the movie. John Ridgely was Officer Sanders, and uh, he was short-lived in the movie. Uh, James Gleason was Police Lieutenant Rooney. Edward Everett Horton was uh, Mr. Witherspoon, another great actor. <laughs> Grant Mitchell was Reverend Harper. Vaughn Glasser was Judge Coleman. Chester Clute was Dr. Gilchrist. Edward McWade was Mr. Gibbs, the old man, and almost dead man. Um, Gary Owen was a taxi cab driver. Charles Lane was the first reporter. Hank Mann was the second reporter with camera. And Spencer Charters was, again, one of my most favorite characters in there in the beginning of the film. He was the marriage license clerk. So, uh, and anything you wanted to add about the cast? What did you think? Uh, well, I really love, probably my favorite person in this whole movie is probably Aunt Abby. Um, I, I just love her performance and the way she just, you know, hops around. the hops around. She's like she's like everybody's grandma in this movie. And it, it she just plays it so well. And um, what people may not realize is this is our second time recording this episode. <laughs> Sarah was not happy with the way it went the first time. So we are re-recording this entire episode. So, um, but uh, Sarah brought up the last time that we did this is because that when you're doing a stage play, it's very, um, even the people in the, the, the cheap seats, as we call it, the nosebleeds, still need to have the same effect and feel like they're part of something, even for the people that are on the front row. And so she brought that, you could tell from her stage presence of hopping, so she people could see far away um, what she was doing. And I think she brought it straight to the, to the movie, and I think she did a fantastic job. Yes. Yeah, you almost have to overact. And yes, I am just a small right. perfectionist. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, uh, I asked Sarah if she would do a little mini biography on Cary Grant because Cary Grant is such an amazing actor. Um, I just chose this movie because... I really like this movie for one, but he's been in so many movies um, that we'll probably get to on the podcast somewhere down the line. Uh, but I asked her to just do a little biography on him so you get to know Mr. Cary Grant a little bit better. Yes. So, Sarah, if you want to take that away. Yes, he was uh, He was definitely, um, I was giving a lot of thought of how many movies he was in. I think he was, it was It was his nine to five job. I mean, he was very prolific in the, in the times that he was acting. Um, he was once told by an interviewer, everybody would like to be Cary Grant. And his response was, so would I. He was a very humble, humble man. Um, he also, I love this quote because it's right up my macabre alley. Um, he states, quote, death, of course I think of it, but I don't want to dwell on it. I think the thing you think about when you're my age is how you're going to do it and whether you'll behave well, unquote. Uh, he was actually asked uh, to, he gave that quote later in life. Cary Grant was born Archibald Alec Leach on January 18th, 1904, in Horfield, Bristol, England, to Elsie Maria and Elias James Leach, who worked in a factory. His early years in Bristol would have been an ordinary lower-middle-class childhood, except for one extraordinary event. At age nine, he came home from school one day and was told his mother had gone off to a seaside resort. However, the real truth was that she had been placed in a mental institution where she would remain for years, and he was never told about it. 
He would not see his mom again until he was in his late 20s. He left. That's so sad. It is. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. No. I mean, you need, and that's a pivotal part in life. Age nine, when you're when you're a young boy, that's when you're starting to become a man, and you just need that, you know, the yin and yang between two parents. Um, mm-hmm. So important. Um, he left school at the age of fourteen, lying about his age and forging his father's signature um, on a letter to join Bob Pender's troupe of knockabout comedians. He learned pantomime as well as acrobatics. As he toured with the Pender Troupe in the English provinces, picked up a Cockney accent in the music halls in London, and then in July of 1920, was one of the eight Pender boys selected to go to the United States. Which is just, I mean, to think of being that young and going to a completely different country. And back then, I do believe, were they flying back then? Possibly. Yeah, maybe he flew there. I was trying to wonder if he flew or took a boat. (laughs) They didn't have a lot of money, so they might have taken a boat. Anyways, their show on Broadway, Good Times, ran for 456 performances, giving Grant time to acclimatize me and words today. Um, So he would actually stay in America. Mae West wanted Grant for She'd Done Him Wrong in 1933 because she saw his combination of virility, sexuality, and the aura and bearing of a gentleman. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was fun, uh, to hear. Uh, she was a sassy thing, so I think they probably would have done great. I need to see that movie. In To Catch a Thief <laughs> in 1955, he and Grace Kelly were allowed to improvise some of the dialogue. They knew what the director, Alfred Hitchcock, which ended up being a very good friend of Carrie's, wanted to do with the scene. They rehearsed it, put in some clever double entendres that got past the censors, and then the scene was filmed. It should be noted that during the 1940s and 1950s, Grant developed a close working relationship with director Alfred Hitchcock, who cast him in critically acclaimed films. His biggest box office success and one of my all-time favorite movies was the 1950s film North by Northwest, which filmed in, uh, released in 1959, made with Eva Marie Saint. The suspense drama Suspicion and Notorious, the latter, his first pairing with Ingrid Berman, w- both involved Grant showing a darker, more ambiguous nature to his characters. Toward the end of his career, Grant was praised by critics as a romantic leading man, and he received five nominations for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, including Indiscreet in 1958 with Ingrid Berman, That Touch of Mink in 1962 with Doris Day, and Charade in 1963 with Audrey Hepburn. He is remembered for his broad appeal as a handsome, suave actor who does not take himself too seriously. He was humble, which made people love him even more. Grant was married five times, three of them elopements with actresses, Virginia Sherrill, uh, 1934 to 1935, Betsy Drake, 1949 to 1962, and Dan Cannon, who would end up being the mother of his child, from 1965 to 1968. He did become a father in the very young age of 62. Um, I cannot <laughs> fathom that at all. Me either. I mean, 62, there's no way. Yes, I was... I mean, for our older listeners... You let me know, but I know my dad listens to this, and Dad, would you like to have a child right now? I think you're 65 or 66, and I, I just don't see it. No. No. I mean, yes, it's... Not that he's not a great father. It's just that I just don't... I wouldn't put him through that right now. You know what the I mean? energy. I was considered an, quote, unquote, older mom. I had my kids in my 30s, and um, I don't have the energy for that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his daughter was his life, and her name was Jennifer. Is Jennifer. She's still alive. 
Um, although Grant retired from the screen, he remained active. He accepted a position on the board of directors at Fabergé. By all accounts, his position was not honorary, as some had assumed. Grant regularly attended meetings and traveled internationally to support them. The position also permitted use of a private plane, how nice would that be, which Grant could use to fly and see his daughter whenever her mother, Diane Cannon, was working. The later, He later joined the boards of Hollywood Park, the Academy of Magical Arts, which is the Magic Castle in Hollywood, California, Western Airlines, which was acquired by Delta Airlines in 1987, and MGM. Grant expressed no interest in making a career comeback, even though he was bagged mercilessly. Um, he was in good health until almost the end of his life when he suffered a mild stroke in October of 1984. In his last years, he undertook tours of the United States in a one-man show, A Conversation with Cary Grant, in which he would show clips from his films and answer audience questions. I must say, I really wish that I could have been in the audience because could you imagine him just sitting there and talking about these these films he's done and his experiences? Okay, so if you could if you could be sitting in that audience and he was taking questions from the audience, what question would you like to ask Mr. Cary Grant? Who is his most favorite leading lady, which I kind of think I know, and um, also what was his most favorite film to make? Uh, because truly... I know it wasn't this one. Yes, he hated this one. He hated one. this film because he felt he overacted it, but he had to kind of come up because there was a lot of stage actors that were in this film. Two of the most notable were the ants. Um, but he had to kind of meet them where they were. Uh, I've read that he actually complained... M- horribly on this film he didn't like the set he didn't like how different things were run um but to see him he didn't like the comedy of this either he didn't like the comedy aspect of it. he thought it was too over the top of a of an actor to act like that for the comedy in this this movie yeah, yeah. but he i mean if the seriousness of it and the scariness of it because thinking back that time a lot of people would be behind the couch if they were on a couch watching this movie um it was you know the comedy was perfect, and it was so straight-laced. Oh, my Avril well, no pun intended, but pun intended, I guess. But it was straight-laced <laughs> because you could, not, you could not tell these people were being comedic, but the lines were perfect. The timing was perfect. and it, 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 Anyway, we'll get there. Um, so on November 29th, 1986, Cary Grant died. He was, it was before he went on stage for one of his shows at the age of 82 of a cerebral hemorrhage in Davenport, Iowa. His death was not followed by a funeral. He actually said, I don't want to have a funeral at all. A portion of his cremains were sprinkled in the Pacific Ocean on the Southern Californian coast. In 1999, the American Film Institute named Grant the second male star of Golden Age of Hollywood cinema after Humphrey Bogart, which seriously beautiful company to be amongst. Grant was known for comedic and dramatic roles. His best-known films include Bringing Up Baby in 1938, The Philadelphia Story in 40, His Girl Friday in 40, Arsenic and Old Lace in 42, Notorious in 46, An Affair to Remember in 57, North by Northwest in 59, and Charade in 63. I've got a couple little things about him. I don't know if we want to chat about that little, little tidbits or if we want to wait. It's up to you. Well, I mean, let me go and throw a couple things in here that you may have not have covered yet, and then you can tell me if these are your tidbits or not. I'm not sure where you're going I with this. Have. So, um, he, <laughs> otherwise, in case I say it, you can mark it out. Huh? Um, 
I, what I always thought is that he was a great fan of Elvis Presley, and I was a great fan of Elvis Presley, too. I love his movies. A lot of people don't like his movies. They think they're over the top and musical, but I really like them. Um, but he said that he would go see Elvis at his Las Vegas shows, and uh, there's even some pictures of him, you know, where you can see him, or even in the uh, closing credits of Elvis, that's the way it is from 1970. You can actually see him backstage uh, during the, the closing credits of that. Um one thing that I thought was pretty awesome about Cary Grant is that back then, back in the earlier uh, times of the movies, the, the actors and actresses would be, um, I don't want to say uh, owned, but they would be contracted out mm-hmm. uh, per studios. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I like about Cary Grant is that, you know, he was like, I'm, I'm going to freelance. He's like, I'm not going to sign with anybody at this certain point. Um, so, which made him very special and, and a sought after talent because he could basically go for anywhere he wanted to do, any type of role that he wanted to do, any movie he wanted to do, without anybody telling me, no, you can't go do this, or they got to give us this person for this role if you go do this role for them. So, I really like that about him. Play off that um, a little bit about him breaking the rules. I just wanted to, to add this. I thought it was hilarious. From 1932 to 1944, he shared a house with Randolph Scott whom he met on Hot Saturday in 1932. Scott often jokingly referred to Grant as his spouse. The 1940 census report (laughs) shows Scott as head of household and Grant as his partner. Many studio heads (laughs) threatened not to employ them together unless they lived separately. Grant's uh, marriage to Barbara Hutton permanently dissolved this living arrangement with Scott. But I thought it was hilarious because, especially back in those days... Certain living situations were not accepted, and he just kind of bucked the the industry that way too. Which it, he just he's hilarious. So I'm sorry. Go on. Oh no, you're good. Um, a couple other things. The late Christopher Reeve said that his portrayal of Clark Kent and Superman uh, films were based on Grant in the early part of his career. Um, he also was almost James Bond in Doctor No in 1962, but he thought he was too old to play the role at the ripe old age of 58. Like you have a kid in 62. Um, the, role ob- <laughs> the role obviously went to Sean Connery and said, but I could see Cary Grant doing it, though. But he had a kid at 62. Um, and one th- <laughs> right. One thing that I really appreciate about Cary Grant is um, he donated a lot of his salary uh, from movies to charities, to the wartime efforts. Um, he didn't like uh, this movie, Arsenic and Old Lace. He donated um, anywhere from a hundred thousand to one hundred sixty thousand. The numbers are a little skewed all over the place to the U.S. War Relief Fund. Um, he also gave his entire fee for the Philadelphia story in 1940 to the British war effort. So this guy cares about you know what's going on around him too, and I think that's very very important. And we'll get into some more numbers here later on in some of the notes. I'm sure Sarah has, and if not, I have them. Um, a couple of quotes that I found that I personally liked. Um, one is, I think making love is the best form of exercise. Oh, I just think that is hilarious. <laughs> um, but when uh, back then the, the, the reporters would get wires from uh, people to ask questions, and, and uh, so he got this one that says, uh, "The wire said, how old Cary Grant?" And old Cary Grant was fine. How are you? Yeah. You know, I just it just is, he was always quick witted. Awesome. Um, there's another one that says, "It's important to know where you've come from, so that you can know where you're going." I probably chose my profession because I was seeking approval, adulation, admiration, and affection. And that is so far forgotten in this country today that it's it's unbelievable. And you got to know where you came from to understand where you're going because you can't just delete history. It happened. And we need to not be reminded. We need to, I don't want to say be reminded of it, but we need to learn from it. Right. Um, and I think this, you know, cancel culture, deleting this, deleting that, I don't think that's the way to do it. No. So, um 
And also, uh, his salary range um, started making movies for four, only $450 a week uh, for This Is The Night in 1932 to earning $4 million for That Touch of Mink, which I love that movie, in 1962, which included his percentage of the gross profits. So, what an amazing man. Awesome. Um, if you have anything else to add, go right ahead. A couple little things I found funny. He maintained a suntan year-round, so he didn't have to put on any makeup. Um, he often spoke of his relationship with Sophia Loren as one of the most passionate romances of his life. He was almost obsessed with her. She was uh, 31 years his junior. After they broke up, he tried to to get back with her many times, and she just said no. Um, John Cleese's character in A Fish Called Wanda in 1988 was named Archie Leach after Grant's real name. Um, let's see. Oh, really funny story. He once phoned hotel mogul Conrad, Conrad Hilton in Istanbul, Turkey, to find out why his breakfast order at the Plaza Hotel, which called for muffins, came with only one and a half English muffins instead of two. When he insisted that the explanation, a hotel efficiency report had found, that most people ate only three of the four halves brought to them, um, it still resulted in his being cheated out of a half. The Plaza Hotel changed its policy and began serving two complete muffins with breakfast. From then on, he often spoke of forming an English Muffin Lovers Society, members of which would be required to report any hotel or restaurant that insists that listed muffins on the menu and then served fewer than two. That is just hilarious. <laughs> um... Let's see, I think you've got pretty much everything else. He did make it onto a 37-cent stamp when they did a commemorative stamp layout for actors and actresses. So, oh, and then also going back to his early days, uh, thanks mainly to the strength and physical dexterity he uh, he gained as an acrobat when he was young, he did a majority of his own stunts during his film career. So a lot of people, I have a lot of respect for actors and actresses such as Lucille Ball, um, in, in Jackie Chan, yes, um, um, Dick Van Dyke, all doing their own, and um, to me that makes that makes your respect meter go way up for me. So, all right, um, anything else? So let me go ahead and throw a quick synopsis yes. out here of this movie. Or we'll talk about Cary Grant the entire episode. So no, no, it's good. I love I love talking about Cary Grant. Uh, so uh, the synopsis for this: Arsenic and Old Lace, a, a drama critic who is played by Cary Grant, learns on his wedding day that his beloved maiden aunts are homicidal maniacs, and that insanity runs in his family. Um, just comedy ensues at, at this. Uh, one little, th- a couple of things before we get started. Then I'm going to let Sarah take the bulk of this because she's uh, handwriting everything down. So <laughs> she wants to make sure she gets it all, and that's fine with me. And I'll just uh, tag along things as I go. Um, one thing that people need to realize is that 20 years before filming this movie, um, his name was uh, Archie Leach. Let's not forget actress Gina Dare, who played Martha in this, Martha Brewster in this, who played his aunt. Um, helped nurse a very sick vaudeville performer uh, named Archie Leach back to health. By the time she was asked to reprise her Broadway arsenic and old lace role as Aunt Martha for this film, Adar and Leach, now known as Cary Grant, were old friends. So that goes back 20 years before this movie even started. I think that's amazing. So we're going to go ahead and start uh, rolling with the movie. Um, and, I'll, and I'm going to tell this thing right away, and then Sarah will obviously take over. But the one thing that I noticed right when this started, it starts off in... Um, I want to say the Brooklyn Dodgers, or not Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, the New York Yankees, I believe, 
and I think they might be playing yes. the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, you know, it's like oh, weird things are happening. It's Halloween Day or whatever, and 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 you know, the, the, there was an old saying that you know the 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 uh, Yankees never win on Halloween Day or the Mets, whoever they I forget the two names of the baseball player or teams, but uh, it says uh, you know it's. It's three o'clock or whatever. So you're like, okay, it's three. And then it does a little fade scene. And it's like across the other side of town at the exact same time, uh, you see Cary Grant and um, his, uh, was it Helen? Is that her name? I believe. We start with what's, the what's his, uh, police office. Yes, we're starting at the marriage license uh, office. Yes. Yeah. So, but what was his wife's name or his Elaine. fiance in this? Helen? Elaine. Elaine. Mm-hmm. Elaine. Right. So. They sit there, and it says, uh, you know, we'll get there. But when they get up to the marriage clerks, the guy says, good morning. It is obviously past afternoon. You've already said that at the beginning of the movie. So when they says good morning, they just, it threw me for a loop. And I was like, well, did we just overlook this? And I watched this it again yesterday. The of your movie. And I still didn't pick up on it. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, th- th- that's one thing, you know, I, I, I see those little things like it, it just bothers me sometimes because they're to- so concerned about the larger things that stuff like this slips through in movies. And then, and then I have a hard time focusing on the rest of the movie because I'm so mad or so upset that they didn't catch these small little things that they left in there but that's just me that's who i am so sarah you go ahead and take this away well, being a mom when i get to finally sit down and watch a movie i'm just so excited i don't care uh, so <laughs> <laughs> we we've got that for us anyway so yes um they walk in uh mortimer and elaine walk into the marriage license office now you gotta know that um mortimer his job was a writer and he wrote the book, literally the Bible on being a bachelor and not being married. So they're in line and he's got eyes darting around as they're waiting to be uh, given their license to get married. And two uh, reporters walk in and they're like, ah, there's nothing big going on here. And then the one's like, hey, wait a minute, isn't that Mortimer Brewster? And they're like, well, this is a marriage certificate license place and it can't be him. He hates women. You know, he doesn't want to get married. And um, so... They get up there, Elaine and Mortimer get up to the guy, and Elaine says her name. He's like, what? You know, and so she says it louder, and then he can't hear Mortimer say his name. So it it starts with this huge comedic um, body language thing, and you know you're in for it now, because, you know, um, Mortimer's, Cary Grant's trying to figure out a way to tell them his name without telling them, and the reporter's hearing it, Um, and he's failing at it. So he grabs Elaine, he pulls her out, he actually climbs into a a phone booth with another man, and he goes, have a nice day, dear, and hangs up the phone for the guy, (laughs) and then um, pushes him out, and he's just telling her how he can't marry her. It just can't happen. And she's got the most loving, beautiful eyes in her face, and she's like, I understand. And he, he was expecting this fight, and she's like, I understand. And then she gives him this look, and he just grabs her and kisses her passionately and then pulls her back into line uh, for the marriage certificate and a, a woman in front of them turns around and then slowly winks at her and um, Elaine winks back. Um, and so it was like, it was a plan. Anyway. Right. And then you see the guy turn around and smile real big at uh, Mortimer. <laughs> he turns around and gives a big phony smile yes, back. Yes. <laughs> oh, so then we, we go off and we the next scene is there's two police officers. Um, uh, 
officer number one, as I named him, was Officer Brophy, and then Officer O'Hara is number two. Brophy's teaching O'Hara the the walk around the neighborhood because he's obviously going to be retiring from his from his position. So um, he's showing him all the stuff, and, and O'Hara makes some comment about um, the the age of the people living there in the in the house. Um, where Abby and Martha live and, and Brophy, you know, admonishes him and says, no, 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 you know, don't, let's not, you know, uh, be mean. These are the sweetest ladies we you'll ever meet and they're caring and wonderful and, and they're very involved and their family came in on the Mayflower and they built the house. So they, this house has got a long standing with the neighborhood and long standing with the family. Um, so the two police officers, um, Walk up to the house, and the young one goes, "Hey, are, are they in need for money? Um, because they uh, they have a rent for rent sign, room for rent sign in the front." And the older guy's like, "No, no, 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 no. They're so giving that they're probably looking for people who are needy, so they can give them a good meal and a good drink, and then uh, a couple bucks and send them on their way." So um, it was a little foreshadowing. <laughs> so um, <laughs> when they walk in. Uh, Teddy is in the main living room, uh, Theodore, and uh, Aunt Abby and the Reverend, who actually lives across the way, house next door, but in between the two houses is a cemetery, um, is there talking with Aunt Abby. So the police walk in. They say they came for the toys. They get the toys. They ask Ted to go get a couple more boxes of toys. So Ted, who thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt... Stops at the landing and then runs up the stairs yelling, charge. And he's actually reenacting the charge on San Juan Hill um, uh, for Teddy Roosevelt. And he runs up there and he slams the door, always. And the clock goes off and Aunt Abby kind of um, bounces, as you said, kind of like bounces over and fixes the clock. Um, And he comes down bringing the toys but he has a problem with one of the, with one of the toys. He's like, no, 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 no. This is mine. And so they agreed to let him keep it. But all the rest were able to to um, to go. The Reverend and the police were discussing just how lovely the ants are. Ted plays his trumpet, and uh, enter Aunt Martha from the front door, and uh, she's the second sister. So. Aunt, Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha are now together in the scene, and they don't break scene pretty much for the rest of the movie. Um, the police leave, and uh, once the younger police officer realizes that Teddy thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt, he stops, he salutes, and he elbows uh, the retiring police officer, and he salutes, and then um, they leave. And then uh, it was funny because the young officer pops his head back in and he winks at Teddy and Teddy goes, let that be a lesson to you. (laughs) Now, I have a question for you. Is uh, Teddy, was his real name Teddy in the movie or did we ever find out? Or did they just call him Teddy because he thought he was Theodore Roosevelt? He was Teddy Teddy Brewster. He was Teddy Brewster. Just wanted to make sure. Because later in the movie... They had to get him to sign his real name. And so it was, he had to sign Brewster. So I'll get to that in a little bit. But yes, it was Teddy Brewster. I just didn't know if his first name was really Teddy. Yes. So that's why I was asking. Yes, yes, it was. Okay. Good question. I'm just, just, just checking. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> um, so the Reverend leaves after a chat about Ted and his future. Um, so they were talking about how 
once Aunt Martha and Aunt Abby passed away, that um, Mortimer was making plans that Teddy would be taken to Happy Dale Sanitarium to live out his life. And so everything was kind of set up for that. And um, Mortimer was making that those arrangements already so that the women had nothing to worry about. Um, Teddy enters. Um, Aunt Abby tells Ted to go build another lock for the canal in Panama, um, which is basically <laughs> code word for you got to go dig another grave in the basement. He runs upstairs <laughs> to prepare screaming charge. Uh, Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha are now alone and they're discussing that um, one was there and that she was uh, that that she was all alone and that Aunt Martha asked, where is this one and Aunt Abby said, "Look in the window seat." Um, Elaine pops in the window, and when they go over to the window seat, Elaine pops in the window and gives them both a kiss, and they both look at her kind of knowingly, and she nods her head yes. So now they know that they are for sure married. Um, Mortimer, oh Mortimer, asked the cabbie to stay. Which is going to be, he is, he just kind of plays throughout the entire movie. This cab driver is hilarious. He stays and Mortimer gets out of the cab and he hands, the cabbie hands Mortimer Elaine's hat and brooch. So apparently there were things going on in the cab on the way home. Um, so uh, he chases Elaine around the cemetery and she's like, you know, what are people going to think? And He's like, I don't care. We're married now. And and um, she runs behind the tree and she goes, but Mortimer, you're going to love me for more than my mind, right? And his response was, one thing at a time, one thing at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets her behind the tree and kisses her passionately. And then they talk about their little signal on when she's going to be packed and ready to go. Um and uh, he does inform her that they are going to go to Niagara Falls. And they're going to go over the Niagara Falls in a barrel. Um, so Elaine whistles the Here Comes the Bride just to test it out. So we all know what's going on, right? So Mortimer comes in to the home. He tells his aunts that he is married um, and he needs to go. And... He quickly gets on the phone and he calls the florist and makes sure that the flowers are delivered to the pastor. Um, by the way, the pastor was not happy that his daughter was going to marry mm -hmm. Mortimer because of Mortimer's books on how you should stay a bachelor. Um, and then he's right. If you re if you remember before Mortimer and him and even the police to get there, the, her the, her dad is in there talking to Aunt yes, Abby, and he's like, "Look, he's like, I can't. No man would let their daughter daughter marry this guy when he wrote like a book like this, and it was marriage a fraud and failure. Yes. Um, so uh, he he has a right to his opinions, but they went and did it anyway. So I thought that was very interesting too. Yes, apparently he was taking her out six days a week for the last six months or so. So they all knew something yeah. <laughs> was down the pike here. Um, but anyways, while he's on the phone, he's making sure the flowers are delivered and then um, has another four dozen delivered to her um the ants insist on making a cake and they want to have a full celebration he's trying to convince them no 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 this is not going to happen so mortimer and aunt abby um aunt, aunt martha goes off scene into the kitchen to start cooking mortimer and aunt abby are discussing and he starts looking for his last manuscript for his next book um that he wants to burn 
because he does not want his new bride to see it. And they're looking all over together, and Abby leaves to go to the kitchen to help Aunt Martha, and Mortimer's making his way around the, the, the room and opens up the window seat. And he his, his eyes get so big, and then he slams it shut, and then he, like, thinks about it for a second, and he lifts it up again and looks, and then he slams it shut, and he spins around and just sits on the top of the... the the box, you know, the window seat. And he's just like kind of like looking around and you can tell what this man is thinking by looking at his eyes. And again, this goes back to the whole stage thing. I think that Capra really kind of had them, you know, all act at the same level. And just just his eyes were so vibrant and he's looking darting back and forth like what is he going to do? And then you see him kind of realize he thinks it's Teddy, that Teddy's killed this man. And now he knows for sure Teddy's lost his mind. So um, Mortimer, uh, <laughs> Elaine whistles and Mortimer is unable to whistle back <laughs> because he's kind of in shock. He's trying, he's, he's trying, but he can't. Um, so the ants come in, he's still on the window seat and they're taking, they take a bowl of rice and they're throwing these thick handfuls of rice onto his head. Like, I mean, a foot away from him. And he's just, he's just like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't get this, women. You know, this is not right. Um, So he says to them that he thinks Teddy has murdered a man and that this is serious. And, and he's like, you know, there's a, there's a body in here. And they're like, yes, we know. And he's like, well, what's he doing in here? And they like, Aunt Martha's like, well, he died. (laughs) Like, yes. <laughs> like duh. And he's like, you know, um, he's like, well, you, he didn't die in the box. What happened? You know, and Aunt Abby's like, well, the gentleman died because he drank wine with poison in it. You know, just like it was everyday discussion. There was nothing off about it. And again, comedic genius. These two, these these three people are able to do the scene without laughing. I mean, seriously. Um, so they. Um, Excuse me. Mortimer calls. Uh, Mortimer goes to call the operator to get a hold of the to get a hold of the facility to get Teddy put in because he's like something's got to happen. So then the ants go into the kitchen. I'm gonna tell you this was probably the scariest part of the movie. It's a it's Halloween. So in the back kitchen, all these children are are in like leaning into the kitchen window for trick or treats. Mm-hmm. And the, the the masks these children are wearing, I'm like, this <laughs> is just mortifying. I mean, it was horrible. Um, but they were giving him like carved pumpkins and things. I mean, not candy at all. It was it was very odd. It was an odd part of the movie. Like it didn't really fit. But I guess they were just trying to tie it in that it was Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. So Mortimer is upset about this. He's trying to deal with it. He can't get through in the operator and he hangs up the phone and the ants come in and they're like, Mortimer, just forget about it. And, you know, the ants tell um, him that they bury him and the others in the basement in the locks. So he's just like, what? And then they're discussing how many they've done, how many they've killed. And they're like, um, and, Aunt Abby goes, this is an even dozen. And Aunt Martha goes, no, no, no. I think this is 13 <laughs> or, or 11. And, and, 11, and, Mar- 11. And, and Abby goes, no, no, no. It's 12. And she goes, oh, are you counting the first one? 
even though he he died on his own and she's like yes yes him counting him so it was an even dozen um so they start to explain this to him that they wanted they they saw the one man die of a heart attack in the chair that Mortimer was sitting in and it takes him a, a, a few seconds to figure it out and then he gets up off the chair and that he, they saw such peace in him he was so lonely no family nobody to talk to that um they wanted to bring other lonely men that same peace so um ted found teddy found the first one that died and thought he died of yellow fever and so then he brought him down to the basement and buried him like all yellow fever victims should be done should be treated so um so they talk about the wine that they make. And Aunt Martha, they actually had a big issue with actually putting the recipe in the movie. They didn't want to do it. They didn't think that was very smart. But they, they ended up talking about it in the movie. Aunt Martha stated that um, their uh, Mortimer's grandfather had a lab upstairs and all these jars of poison on the wall. And Aunt Martha's good with a recipe as they stated. <laughs> and um, Aunt Martha says, we made one gallon to one gallon of elderberry wine, one teaspoon of arsenic, one half teaspoon of strychnine, and a pinch of cyanide. And Mortimer, he like, cocks his head to the side and went, should have quite a kick. I mean, it was perfect. It was, it was one of those laugh out loud <laughs> seconds in the movie. It was just awesome. Anyways, and then Aunt Abby goes, yes, one of our gentlemen found the time to say, how delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so the ants go off to make a cake. Mortimer calls uh, Judge Coleman and tries to get uh, a meeting with him. He's get, having a hard time getting through to him, too. Him and operators are not, uh, are not having a good relationship during this movie. So Elaine comes by. He kicks her out. He tries to. Um... He speaks with Judge Coleman. Uh, Elaine sits on the window seats. uh, Mortimer turns around, sees it, freaks out, grabs her, and carries her out of the house and pushes her out. Actually, while she's being pushed out, the next potential victim for Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha is waiting to be let in. Um, He comes in to uh, see the room and uh, see if he uh, could move in there and... um, Mortimer's on the phone again, having a hard time getting through, screaming in the phone. And the gentleman's upset by the noise and tells the ants that he is uh, he's lonely and he has no family um, and he wants to see the room. He doesn't drink. So they're both like, oh, you know, and then they're like, well, it's elderberry wine. And then, you know, he was starting to walk away and he stopped. <laughs> and he goes, elderberry wine. I haven't had that since I was a young boy. You know, so he sits down and they're all excited. Um, and so they pour him a glass of wine. So both ladies, Martha's sitting, Abby's standing, and they're very close to him. And every time he goes to lift the glass to take a drink, they lean in, you know, like, come on, drink it. And then Mortimer screams. So then he pulls the glass away and looks at Mortimer. And this goes on for a few minutes. Then all of a sudden, Mortimer turns around and he realizes, you know, he, he comes to the table and he pours himself a glass of wine. And, and the ants are like, Mortimer! No, no, no! You know, and, and he goes to drink. They're like Mortimer, and he realizes what he's what he's got in his hand. And then he looks at the man. He realizes what the man's got in his hand. He like slaps it out of his hand. The man loses it. He gets up, and Mortimer tries to chase him out of the house. 
and falls over the chair and the man leaves. So, um, uh, Mortimer comes and he looks at his aunts and he's like, this is developing into a really bad habit. You cannot do this. This is bad to do. So, um, Mr. Witherspoon calls back and says, you know, we really can't take Teddy. This is the guy that runs the um, Happy Dale facility. He goes, we can't have Teddy because we have too many Teddy Roosevelt's in this facility already. Could he be a Napoleon Bonaparte? <laughs> and the aunt had said earlier in the film that they had asked Teddy to be another character, but then he hid under the bed for two days, and um, that it didn't work. It, it, you know, he he's Teddy Roosevelt, and that's who he is. Um, so Mortimer is about to leave to go to Judge Coleman's because he needs the paper signed to commit Teddy. Um, and uh, before he leaves, he says, do not open this door for anybody. Do not let anybody else in this house tonight. And the ants promised him. And he turns out the light. He runs out to the cab driver and says, I need a cab. The cab driver goes into the street, hails a cab, gets him in the cab. He steps away from it as the cab's driving away and goes, hey, wait a minute. I have a cab. So right. <laughs> off Mortimer goes and, you know, the ants have the lights off and they're starting to go up the stairs. And at that point, the shadow of two men come to the front door and they knock on the front door. And the ants look out the, the landing window and neither one recognized them. Um, and then in walk Jonathan, the uh, bad brother of um, Mortimer, which earlier in this in the show, I, I did skip that note. I apologize. He was talk. Uh, Mortimer was talking with Aunt Abby, and they were looking for the manuscript. And she found a picture of Jonathan as a young boy. And Mortimer said, "Oh, he's probably dead by now, or in jail, because he went into a life of crime." And um, Mortimer made a reference of, "Burn the picture. We should not have this picture anymore." Um, so in walk Jonathan and Doctor Einstein, who is a drunk <laughs> um, surgeon. A plastic surgeon. Like a plastic, plastic surgeon. surgeon. Yep. So, um, I want to make a side note. From this point on to the movie, the shadow play in the film was magnificent. If, mm-hmm. you know, if there was not that comedy there, this would have been a true horror. True horror. So, Jonathan had an, uh, also an amazing voice and a perfect demeanor for this part. Um, even though Boris Karloff played the part on stage... He was not allowed. They they would not break his contract to let him play. And he was actually very furious over that. Um, he did allow his name to be mentioned in the movie. But because of the fact that he was a financier for the f- stage play, they felt that if he went into the movie that it would detract from um, the, the, the stage play, that people wouldn't go. Um, and also, they did have a, another large name in my notes somewhere. It's in there to play his part on stage. So he could have been in the movie. But they wouldn't let him out of his contract. I just think if Boris Karloff could have been in this movie, it would have been so uh, much better. Not that this guy didn't do a good job, but Boris Karloff's one of my all-time favorites, too, yeah. just from all the horror movies that he did, the Universal Monster movies. And I just would love to have seen him in this in this part. Um, and another reason that they probably didn't let him go do the movie is because he's a big star at this point. And if you have this uh, Boris Karloff featuring in Arsic and Old Lace, the ticket sells are going to be skyrocketed for one. If you take that off, there might not enough people might have not came to see the Broadway play. And number two, if they left his name up there and he wasn't in it, then they probably could have been in a lawsuit or something. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yep, exactly. Nowadays, they just say there's a possibility these people won't be there. Um, right. And everybody <laughs> should be okay with that, right? Um, but Dr. Doctor Einstein is extremely squirrely, actually uh, almost diminutive, uh, in, in a drunk. <laughs> Throughout the whole movie, a drunk. He's got a, a German accent um, and talks very softly, very calmingly, um, which I think is what keeps Jonathan somewhat balanced. Not very, but somewhat. Um, so both Aunt Abby and Aunt um, Martha did not recognize him, and he was kind of getting upset by it, you could tell. And he said, oh, Aunt Abby, I see you're still wearing the garnet ring that um, great-grandfather gave great-grandmother. And, and Aunt Martha, I noticed you're still wearing the high neck from the acid scar you had from <laughs> from Grandpa's laboratory. So um, then they went, oh, Jonathan, <laughs> it is you. Um, so... Aunt Martha comes down and she looks at him. And this is the first reference to the Boris Karloff thing. She's like, I've seen that face before. And um, she goes, oh, yes, I was at the movies. So obviously to go see a Boris Karloff film. And uh, he was, uh, Jonathan was very angry about that. And Dr. Einstein's trying to talk him down, you know, like, oh, I've seen that movie before too. And, 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 and right mm-hmm. before I did surgery on you, you know. So he was trying to have his face continuously altered so he could evade police is what he was doing um so they john Athen, and dr einstein had another character in the movie which didn't really show anything but his shoe by the name of mr spinalzo and he was a man that jonathan had offed uh he killed him because he knew something about jonathan and jonathan needed him to be silenced so um that is just kind of bringing in that character and in, in, in there's going to be a lot of play with that. So um, Mortimer gets the paper signed by Judge Coleman. We go back to that scene and um, he's at his house and he's like, I usually don't do this. And, and he's signing this stuff and he goes, oh, I've got to come back and see your aunts. He goes, I've been so lonely lately. And, and, and Mortimer's trying to walk out and he spins around and goes, don't mention that to my aunts, please. <laughs> don't say anything to my aunts about that. And then he goes, then Mortimer starts leaving. He turns around again. He goes, do you drink? He goes, no, I don't touch the stuff. He goes, except wine once in a while. He goes, no, 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 never drink wine. Ever, never, ever drink wine. Um, and then he leaves. So back at the house, uh, Teddy believed that Dr. Einstein was a General Gothels. Um, I haven't heard of that general, but General Gothels. And it's funny because um, throughout the movie, there are actual references to um books and uh, manuscripts that were written about uh, President Roosevelt that were actually being used physically on, on stage. And then he shows him, he goes, well, I don't look anything like that, Dr. Einstein said. And um, Teddy goes, oh, well, this is in the future. <laughs> so yeah. it's not you're going to look in the future. Um, right. So Teddy said he was going to take uh, Dr. Einstein down to Panama to show him the locks. And the ants are trying to dissuade him from that. But um, the even Jonathan said, "Just go, just 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 go down and see the locks." So Teddy takes Jonathan, uh, Doctor Einstein, down to the locks, and he comes back up and says to Jonathan, uh, "The locks are perfect. Come down, look. You know." And he goes, "Look, it's six feet long, four feet wide, perfect for Mister Espinoza." Um, so John comes up and he and he 
tells the ants we're going to turn grandfather's laboratory into an operating room and we will be very busy so just you know uh you're gonna have to deal with us here and both ants are trying to get them to leave you know i'm sure you want to get back to your hotel and he goes no you misunderstood we came here um we came here not uh, directly we didn't stop at a hotel um so they, they move their car around to the side of the house. And both ants are like, why are you doing that? And and they're like, you know, we just, we need to, we, it's against the law to leave it out in the street. Which was funny because of his life of crime. So the plan was they were going to move the car along, force everybody to go to bed and bring the dead body, Mr. Spinoza, in through the window over, yes, you've guessed it, the window seat. Um, so um, the ants insist that Teddy move the dead body for the ants. Um, but he's like, no, I should tell the general. He go, They're like, no, we need to keep it a state secret. And it's neat how they use wording, like um, jargon for presidential, you know, presidential positions in order to get him to listen. And he's like, oh, state secret. Okay, I won't tell him. <laughs> so um, Teddy goes down to the basement. Uh, the whole main floor is still dark. No lights. And um, Aunt Abby went to show Aunt Martha the body, finally, of the man that Aunt Abby killed earlier in the day. And when they got to the seat, the the drapes were violently opened, and there's Jonathan looking in and saying, go to bed. So both women were scared, and he sends them to bed, and he stands out there and makes them, and they keep trying to come out. He makes them go back to bed. So... Ted comes up in the dark, steps on the cat, um, and he gets the body. So this whole thing's in the dark. So you hear the creaking of the door opening. You hear the, him struggling to get the body over his shoulder. And you just see from the light of the basement him carrying the body down and shutting the door behind him and then falling down the stairs. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, the music at this point I, it really struck me how masterfully done it was. It never detracted from the movie. Uh, it never made you think, oh, there's music being played. It just really was a second, another character in the film. It was, it was brilliant. Um, so Dr. Einstein and Jonathan, they then come down and they move the body. And Einstein is very small and squirrely again. So Jonathan passes the body through the window and, and Einstein um, pretty much, hit, the body falls on him into the window seat. And uh, that's, they close him up in there. So Elaine shows up looking for um, looking for Mortimer, obviously, and runs into Jonathan, who threatens her. He asks her her name, and she says, you know, her her maiden name. And then she goes, he, she goes, he goes, why are you here? And she goes, well, I married Mortimer. And then he said, well, well aren't you a Brewster then? And she goes, well, yes, it's a new marriage, you know. And then he attacks her. He grabs her. He holds her, and he's trying to drag her down to the basement. And um, she's screaming and fighting, and then the ants come in um, and break it up, and uh, Mortimer walks in then at that point. And uh, Elaine's trying to tell him, you know, I was attacked, I was attacked, and he's like, go home, you know. So Jonathan sees Mortimer, and he reminds Mortimer about the torture he used to put him through, like, sticking needles under his nails and things as he was tied to the bed. I mean, just horrible stuff. Um, and Elaine's not being listened to, obviously, throughout all this. And Mortimer speaks with um, the doctor at Happy Dale and, and tells him to come on down to get Teddy. Um, 
Mortimer then goes to the window seat to raise it up and look in, and he sees another body, Mr. Spinoza, in the window seat. And Aunt Abby does not recognize him. So he calls her over, and he's like, what is this? You did it again? And she's like, no, no, I haven't let anybody in, but Jonathan and Dr. Einstein, they came in on their own. So Jonathan tells them that they are staying. The aunts want to look at the seat. Um, in, they went to look at the seat, and Mortimer realizes... Um, that Jonathan put the body in there. And so Officer O'Hara comes because the lights are on in the house late at night, and that's not normal. And he recognizes Mortimer and uh, as being a writer. So the officer's like, hey, I'm a playwright. I wrote a play, and I want to tell you all about it. So Mortimer is told to leave by Jonathan, but he's kind of stuck. So... They, they bring the police officer into the kitchen. Mortimer's dealing with Jonathan in the living room, dining room area. So the ants are feeding the police officer food. The police officer's trying to tell the story. And then um, Dr. Einstein finds the ant's body in the cellar. So they hadn't covered him because they haven't given him a proper Christian burial. Um, so Mortimer gets rid of the police O'Hara. He says, I'll meet you at this restaurant. You can tell me about your play. So, there's a lot going on in this movie, always. Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha tell Jonathan and Dr. Einstein about the 12 bodies in the basement. They, they come out about it. And Dr. Einstein says, they, killed 12, they, each, they each killed 12, meaning um, the ants killed and Jonathan each killed 12 people. And um, Jonathan, um, he was not happy about this. He's like, well, I need to kill another. So he's going to kill Mortimer. That was his now focus. He's going to kill Mortimer. So Mortimer tells Elaine he can't marry her. He goes out and he sees her. He's like, I can't marry you. He goes, insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. And um, she's just, she's unfazed by this, you know, and, and um, Mortimer gets the doctor to come. He doesn't let him in the house because of all the all the craziness going on in there. So he gets the doctor to sign the papers for Teddy. And then Dr. Uh, Jonathan and Dr. Einstein bury Spinoza in the basement um, with Mr. Hoskins. Now, um, Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha are not happy about this. They say he is a foreigner and a stranger. <laughs> and they only bury right. nice, young men, nice men in the basement. Um... So Jonathan tells Dr. Einstein he needs to kill Mortimer. Um, and they are in the basement discussing and, and, and they're like, Dr. Einstein's like, I haven't slept in 48 hours. I need a nap. Can we kill him tomorrow? And he goes, no, we must kill him tonight. And he's like, can we kill him fast? And he goes, no, we have to kill him this other way. And Einstein's like, no, the last time we did that, it took two hours, you know. Um, he goes, no, I insist, you know. So they're they're going back and forth about that. So... Um, Dr. Einstein separates, runs upstairs to talk to Mortimer to explain to him that he needs to go. And he's really trying to pressure him to leave. And, and Mortimer is hilarious because he starts going, you know what? One of these years when you're in a wheelchair and you're finally get out of prison, he's like, you're going to go to the theater and see this horrible play that's been running forever and it will still be running at this point. And he goes, it's this scene that I hate. It's this man. He knows he's in a house of mur with a murderer and he's being warned to get out, but he's not listening. And he's, you know, and now Mortimer's sitting in the chair. 
an armchair um, where all these men have died. And he's he's going on and on. And Dr. Einstein's like, you must leave. You must leave, you know. And Mortimer's like, and then he ties up the guy with the with the rope from the from the drapes. And so behind Mortimer, Jonathan's going, he's cutting the rope down from the drapes. <laughs> and he goes, and then he gags the guy and then he binds him to the chair. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan binds him to the chair and gags him. And so he's sitting there, bound and gagged to the, to the chair. I'm like, I'm dying laughing at this point. It's just, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Anyway, so um, Dr. Einstein and John almost uh, taste the poison wine. And Mortimer's watching all of this. And at the time they're about to sip it, Teddy comes out and blows his bugle. Now, he's gotten in trouble with the police in the past because the neighbors have called and complained from him blowing the bugle all hours of the night. So, of course, we now know this is middle of the night. Um, the police come in. O'Hare is upset that Mortimer stood him up. Now, he's walking in <laughs> and he sees Mortimer completely tied up. And he um, he does nothing about it. He does nothing about it. So O'Hara leaves him tied up and starts to tell him all about his play. And as Mortimer's yeah, trying to... That's the crazy thing. Eyes. Eyes. He's trying to tell, you know, give me help, you know? Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, as I said, that's the crazy part. The police come in and he's just sitting there and wants to keep talking about this play. And he said they're gagged and tied up. He's like, well, since you're here, you know, and he just keeps going on and on. I was cracking up the entire time. Well, they even say, I, I don't know, I remember if it was Einstein... If it was Einstein or, or Jonathan that say that, well, he was talking about a play, and, and so we were reenacting that, that scene. Um, right, right, right. But Jonathan has a knife, and he's uh, trying to kill the police, and um, he pushes down Dr. Einstein, and then Dr. Einstein actually knocks out Jonathan. So Jonathan passes out, Einstein's sitting on the stairs. Um, uh, it just a whole bit of insanity ensues. There's police everywhere um, because the neighbors had called to complain about the bugle. And um, O'Hara is just clueless. He just keeps telling the story. Uh, so it's just insanity. And then um, O'Hara says, uh, you have to tie him up to make him listen to you. <laughs> so, that's, that was, so he just kind of kept him there. Um, so Jonathan wakes up after being knocked out. And the chief of police is standing next to him describing putting Teddy into the facility, Happy Dale. And the way he's describing it, he's pretty much saying, we've got the guy, he's ready to go in. So Jonathan wakes up from being knocked out and confesses, basically. And um, so they take, the police go, wait a minute, you know. So they take him and um, take him off. And I think this is the first time they actually say right out, Boris Karloff. You look just like Boris Karloff. Um so they take him off, and uh, John says, but there's 13 bodies in the basement. And the, the the police that love these ants are laughing. So they're like, yeah, right, you know, whatever. And, and Mortimer's still tied to the chair, and he's running around the room, <laughs> trying to stop everything. And he's still gagged and tied to the chair. Um, Dr. Uh, Einstein, again... Uh, he hides on the set on the stairs, and um, Mortimer unties himself finally and lights a cigarette because that's the first thing you go for, right? So the cop O'Hara, um, 
is pushed to the stairs, and Mortimer helps uh, with a, a play plot twist for him. And then the com- police commissioner says who Jonathan is. He finally figures it all out. And he's like, why could you guys not know this? He was under your nose this whole time. He's a mass murderer. So Teddy comes down. And um, he says, but there's 13 bodies in the cellar. Teddy says this. And the the captain goes, who are you? And Teddy goes, I'm <laughs> President Roosevelt, you know. And uh, so the captain's like, I haven't slept in 13 hours. These papers are no good because they're signed Teddy Roosevelt. So Dr. <laughs> Witherspoon from Happy Dale comes into the scene. So we have got this massive cast right now, just perfectly placed. Um, Mortimer gets Ted to sign his real name and tells him he has to sign his Brewster name as a code. The code he comes up with, I'm not going into it, but is brilliant. You must watch the film to get that. It is brilliant. Anyway, so mm-hmm. Mr. Witherspoon um, has everything he wants, everything he wants, is everything's ready to go, and um, and he walks up to Mortimer and says, hey, I wrote a play. Will you read it for me? <laughs> So anyway, um, the only way they got Ted out of the house is Dr. Witherspoon says, uh, it's time for you to leave. And he goes, wait, who are you, Taft? And he goes, he go, uh, Teddy goes, no, or uh, Mortimer goes, no, he's going to take you uh, to your Africa trip. And he's like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh, what was the word he used? He used the expression bumble or something like that. So he was just excited and he ran up the stairs screaming charge, slamming the door. Um, And then he comes down and says his goodbyes to Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha. Um, Now, Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha are not happy they want to move with Teddy. And um, it was funny because when Mr. Witherspoon saw Teddy charge up the stairs, he goes, oh boy, there's stairs all over Happy Dale. (laughs) (laughs) so aunt aunt martha and aunt abby want to move with teddy and they have to try to convince um convince them that they're they can go in there he's like well no we only take people who are crazy so mortimer takes the bugle and he screams charge blows the bugle and runs up the stairs and so he's now acting crazy too. And I'm think I'm thinking it's to divert their attention from the thirteen bodies in the basement. So Aunt Abby brings up the graves again, and she goes, "All the graves are marked, and we put fl- fresh flowers on them every Sunday." <laughs> and the captain, the uh, the captain, police captain, convinces Doctor Witherspoon to take the ladies because they're so sweet. How could they kill men and baby down in the basement? So the captain leaves to talk with Jonathan, who is now awake and willing to talk. And uh, Elaine enters through the cellar. Um, Dr. Einstein signs the papers for the ants because they needed a doctor to sign for the ants to be committed. And they're like, hey, wait, you're a doctor. So before he could slip out the door and escape, he comes in, signs the papers, um, and then he slips away. And then the doctor... uh, uh, Mortimer signs as next of kin. And the ants go, oh, no, oh, no. You know, these, these signatures aren't going to be correct if they get looked into. And he goes, don't worry. Dr. Einstein's a real doctor. And they're like, no, no, no. You, Mortimer, you're not really a Brewster. She, they said, you're the, you're the daughter of a cook. We really liked her. She was three months pregnant when she moved in. So a brother married her. And your real father was a cook, too, on a ship. 
And so at this point, Mortimer realizes he's not crazy. He doesn't have the gene. Um, so he's very, very happy. So Mortimer runs over. Uh, he realizes he's not crazy. And then Elaine screams because she's now in the basement. And she comes up the stairs screaming. And he realizes why she's screaming. So he grabs her because there's still police in the area and starts kissing her. So she can't speak and kissing and kissing and kissing her. And then he pulls her outside and keeps kissing her. And she's like, oh, Mortimer. And then she gets into it and they kiss right next to the cabbie who gets really close to them. Um, so Mortimer picks up, picks up Elaine and screams, charge! And that was the end of the scene. So movie was done. It's, uh, it's a brilliant, there's a lot of moving parts. So it's not one of those movies that you can just do another project with. You really have to watch all to get everything. And, and like I was telling you earlier, there's things that I've seen in the movie that, one time watching it, then when I watched it again, I, did, I didn't catch that scene because I was looking for something else. So it's really just a very active, wonderful, wonderful movie. So do you have any like little tidbits? I've got a few. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just a couple things. One, I think a couple, uh, one of the really good scenes of the movie is where the doctor is sitting on the stairs in the basement and uh, Jonathan's down there and all you see is Jonathan's shadow on the wall. And it's just like a gigantic face, you know, talking to him. And he's like, well, you know, I, I can't operate it on you like this. And, you know, and, and he's like, yeah, you will. And all that. Um, another thing is um, another time they dropped Boris Karloff's name. And he's like, well, why did you have to kill? Uh, I think Espinosa was his name. He said, because he said, I look like Boris Karloff. <laughs> you know what I mean? So his name dropped throughout the entire movie. Um, so that's really great, too. Um one of the other things is, uh, if you notice all the scars on the face where he's had so many surgeries done, mm-hmm. um, trying to change his face to get away from the cops throughout the whole, uh, his whole entire on the run. I mean, you see several different scars on his face. Um, the city backdrop, uh, was achieved with two dimensional models of the Manhattan skyline. And in front of that, a foreshadowed three quarter angle miniature of the Brooklyn bridge. The tall buildings were covered with a scrim to make them appear farther off, and a globe was projected around the distant city. In front of the bridge were Brooklyn buildings with a glow of lights in the windows, and still closer, the cemetery next to the Brewster home. From the front tombstone to the Manhattan skyline was 3D perspective effect. It was done in 40 feet of studio space. Also, uh, did you catch it this time watching through that Archer Leach tombstone uh, that's in the it. graveyard? I didn't see it. Didn't see but it? yeah. Well, uh, supposedly there is a tombstone with the name Archer Leach, which is obviously Cary Grant's uh, real name, in the uh, cemetery there. So, um, And if anybody sees it, take a screenshot and throw it on the Facebook feed because Sarah's part of the Facebook group, too. Yes. Um, Just a little thing about As the, of the time of the production of... Oh, sorry, about the Brooklyn Bridge, um, there was... Uh, uh, just a, a little tidbit, little off thing that the the Cincinnati Bridge that goes over the the Ohio River was um, actually built by the man that built the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, they did it on a smaller scale to see if it would work. He actually passed away after that was built, and so his sons built the actual Brooklyn Bridge. Um, so go on. I I, I I apologize. You're good. Um... The uh, uh, time of the production, Warner Brothers announced that the Brewster House was the largest set ever built at the studio. Amazing, isn't it? The house was complete room by room. 
in every detail. In fact, several scenes were filmed in fully furnished rooms that never appear in the film, uh, which I believe ones like the the aunt's bedroom, Teddy's bedroom, and I think the, the laboratory. Uh, library or uh, laboratory. laboratory. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, to add to the creepy mood, a funny creepy mood, uh, Frank Capra ordered a backdrop with wispy clouds in front of a full moon and countless bags of autumn leaves to blow around the exterior house and cemetery sets by three wind machines to give it that scary Halloween feeling. Um, if you have anything to throw in, just wave at me. We're on video or chat or whatever, so she can just wave at me and let me know. Okay. Um, man, I really wish Boris Karloff could have done I this, know. though. I just wanted to see what he could do. He was angry. Um, right. Uh, Director Frank Capra enlisted in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in 1941 during filming. He received an extension of his order to report for active duty uh, until late January 1942 so he could finish editing the picture. Wow. Uh, Frank Capra also noted that while he was stationed in London in 1943, he overheard American and British soldiers screaming charge in the manner of the Teddy Roosevelt character and deduced that they had seen the film. He then learned that Jack L. Warner had released the picture to the armed forces a year before it was to be released to the general public. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, awesome of him to do. Um, by the way, it was Humphrey Bogart that was uh, was going to take over for Boris Karloff on Broadway, but they still said no. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Jack Benny were offered the role of Mortimer Brewster, but turned it down. And then you already said about Bob Hope. I think Jack um, Benny or Bob Hope would have done great, especially Bob Hope. He had those those good facial expressions that you needed in this film. But really, Cary Grant, he, he, pulled, he knocked it out of the park. He really did. Right. Uh, Raymond Massey's makeup, which was the subject of much of the debate during the production, required two hours to apply and two hours to remove. I cannot imagine... Yeah sitting that still for that long just for and it was pretty much just his face um but that's i mean but some of the universal monsters uh features they sit there for longer than that so yeah. uh Frank Crapper related to the role of Mortimer in the film because like the character he too had an older brother who abused him as a child and grew up to be a criminal uh the production code administration strongly recommended that the filmmakers limit the deadly concoction used which you talked about because they didn't want people to go out and try it um but it was actually ignored um, by that and then left in the film the way it was. Cary um, uh, Grant later said in interviews uh, that his role would have been better accomplished by Alice and Jocelyn, the Broadway plays lead, or even by the great James Stewart, which is another one of my favorite yes. actors. Go ahead, Sarah. Um, the ants did say in the movie that they tried to mix it with tea, but it gave it a weird smell so the men wouldn't drink it. Um the film actually took closer to eight weeks to shoot. They Frank Capra wanted to do it within four, um, and he had a four hundred thousand dollar budget that he wanted to keep to, but um, it actually was set just over a million uh, because basically they had to cover Cary Grant and his um, salaries. And like like you've mentioned um, in our conversations, women weren't paid like they should have been um, back in the day, mm -hmm. and so. They, they mainly focused on paying them. So, anything else? Uh, yeah. Um, according to the studio, Warner Brothers Studio Records, uh, the paychecks, or the amount that the actors or actresses was paid, mm -hmm. Cary Grant received $160,000 for the film, which he donated it all to wartime charities. There's, there's room, or not rumors, but there's discrepancies on if he gave it all to one charity or if he broke it down. I won't go into all that right now. Um, Frank Capper received a hundred thousand. Raymond Massey's salary was set at twenty-five thousand. Peter Laurie was earned thirteen thousand, and Gina Dare and Josephine Hall both earned ten thousand for the making of the film. So right there, you can tell. And I was kind of wondering. I wondered what they made for their performances on Broadway. I don't know. 
Um, I don't know if it was just in the movies they were treated differently or were they treated differently in Broadway as well. I'm not sure. I'll have to dig into that and find that. Uh, the hymnal that the ants used to hold the services over Mr. Hoskins is Hymns for Creative Living. It was published in 1935 by the Judson Press. The hymn that they sing, There is a Happy Place, is not in the hymnal, which is kind of odd. Uh, most of the are uh, the interior scenes of the Brewster House, which comprised the majority of the film, were all shot in sequence, um, probably to save on filming and retakes and all that. Um, we talked about what was all in the cocktail of the murder drink. Go ahead. Um, the Broadway comedy itself opened at the Fulton Theater on January tenth, nineteen forty-one, and ran for one thousand four hundred and forty-four performances, which was mind-blowing, uh, more than one wow. per day. Counting matinees, closing on June seventeenth, nineteen forty-four. Repeating their stage roles in the movie was obviously the Brewster siblings, Josephine Hall, Gina Dare, and John Alexander. So um, Teddy came on from the play as well. Um, all three getting time off from the New York play. Boris Karloff, again, as we've said repeatedly, was denied permission to go to the play by the play's producers, fearing that the absence of their main star would adversely affect the play's attendance. So apparently they did not stop the play running, but the understudies of Aunt Abby, Aunt Martha, and Teddy went on to Broadway while they were gone. So that's... Right. And, you know, I kind of I wonder why they didn't wait till after the run of the Broadway play to release the movie. I think it's... Or, you know what I mean? They did say that they didn't, um, that it was doing so well that they thought it might detract. Because back then, I mean, nowadays, you can go see multiple forms of entertainment. But back then, um, it was expensive and it was a, a something to be looked out. You know, it was a big time out to go away and see either a live play or a movie. So I just think that they were trying to run the play as long as they could, frankly. Um, and they said they didn't want to take detract from the play in, in things I've read. Right. So uh, Near the end of the film, Mr. Witherspoon addresses Mortimer as Mr. Witherspoon, and Mortimer corrects him and saves the scene. Cary Grant, you could tell, is, is pretty uh, amused by it. Uh, and when Dr. Einstein is begging Mortimer to flee from Johnson's murder rage, Cary Grant ad-libs to Peter Laurie, Stop underplaying, I can't understand you. And one of the last things is, as Mr. Witherspoon is getting up from the table, he stands an item up on the table which had been knocked over. Mr. Witherspoon then gazes up to look at us and say, "Oops, I wasn't supposed to do that, was I? Are we going to do redo? The, are we going on with the scene?" Cary Grant was feeling pretty certain that the scene would need reshoots, and as you can distinctly yet quietly hear him mask off screen, was he supposed to do that? Jeez. Oh, so, Sarah, yes. give me your thoughts on this film. Should people see it? Well, I think they should. Do you want to hear what sparked the whole film to start? Yes, I, I was waiting for you to say that. I didn't know if you were going <laughs> to dive into that because this is kind of based, well, they say it's based on a true uh, serial killer, female serial yes. killer. So, Sarah, let us know. And then we'll talk, we'll talk about if they should see it or not. So... Um, <laughs> the real story that sparked the movie, Amy Duggan's sister, Archer Gilligan, was born October 31st, 1873. So I think the film kind of nodded to that being a Halloween film. Uh, she was a nursing home proprietor and serial killer from Windsor, Connecticut. Now, I am a licensed nursing home administrator, so this stuff is bothersome, but we're going to go on. This is a long time ago. <laughs> she murdered at least five people, which is completely false. She murdered way more than that. But anyways, by poisoning them, one of her victims was her second husband, Michael Gilligan. The others were residents of her nursing home. 
It is possible that Archer Gilligan was involved in more deaths. The authorities counted 48 deaths in a nursing home, the Archer home for the elderly and infirm. The case attracted wide publicity at the time and has been cited as an inspiration for the play and later film of Arsenic and Old Lace. Amy Duggan married James Archer in 1897, forgive me, a daughter, Mary Archer, was born in 1897, so I'm going to assume she was, they were married in January. Um, the Archers first became caretakers in 1901 and hired to care for John Seymour, an elderly widower. They moved into his home in Newington, Connecticut. Seymour died in 1904. His heirs converted the residence into a boarding house for the elderly, and the archers remained to provide care for the elderly for free for a fee. They paid rent to Seymour's family. They ran the boarding house as Sister Amy's nursing home for the elderly. In 1907, Seymour's heirs decided to sell the house. The archers moved to Windsor, Connecticut, and used their savings to purchase their own residence in Prospect on Prospect Street in Windsor Center. They soon converted it into a business, Archer Home for the Elderly and Infirm. James Archer died in 1910, apparently of natural causes. The official cause of his death was Bright's disease, a genetic uh, term or a generic term for kidney disease. Amy Archer had taken out an insurance policy on him a few weeks before his death. The policy benefit enabled her to continue operating Archer Home. In 1913, Amy married Michael Gilligan, a widower with four adult sons. He was reportedly wealthy and interested in both Amy and investing in her business. However, on February 20th, 1914, yes, after only three year, three months of wedded bliss, um, Michael died. <laughs> the official cause of death was acute bilious attack. In other words, severe indigestion. Are we all shuddering because we've all had it and we didn't die from it? So, oh, it must have been real bad. Anyway, Amy was once again financially secure because during their short marriage of three full months, her new husband had drawn up a will which left his entire estate to her, not his four sons. Huh. Anyway, the will would later be determined a forgery as it was apparently written in handwriting matching Amy's. So let's talk about the murders. Between 1907 and 1917, there were 60 deaths in the Archer home. Relatives of her clients grew suspicious as they tallied the large number of deaths. Only 12 residents died between 1907 and 1910, but 48 residents died between 1911 and 1916. This is obviously before state regulations, I'm just going to say. Anyway... Um, among them was Franklin R. Andrews, an apparently healthy man. On the morning of May 29, 1914, Andrews was doing some gardening in the Archer house. His robust physical condition deteriorated in a single day, and he was dead by evening. The official cause of death was gastric ulcer. Again, something most people don't die from. After Andrews' siblings, including Nellie Pierce, came into possession of some of his letters, they noted occasions where Amy was pressing him for money. Amy's clients showed a pattern of dying not long after giving her a large sum of money. As the deaths continued, Nellie Pierce reported her suspicions to the local district attorney, but he ignored her. So she took her story to the Hartford Corinth. On May 9, 1916, the first of several articles on the murder factory was published. A, f- a few months later, the police started to seriously investigate a case. The murder factory really fits in this case, and I can see that being a headline. Anyway, 
The, invest <laughs> the investigation took almost a year to complete. The, body the bodies of Gilligan, Andrews, and three other boarders were exhumed. All five had died of poisoning, either arsenic or strychnine. Local merchants were able to testify that Amy had been purchasing large quantities of arsenic, supposedly to kill rats. A look into Gillig Gilligan's will established that it was actually a forgery written by Amy. According to M. William Phelps, author of The Devil's Rooming House, investigation appeared to show that Amy was buying the arsenic to kill large numbers of rats. How many rats do you have to have to buy that much poison? Anyway... However, it appears that she did not buy all the arsenic which killed her patients. The doctor had some of the patients had signed off to purchase it. The investigation pursued Dr. King because more evidence was piling up against him, but suspicions were focused back on Amy when someone suggested to clearly check all records of arsenic purchases. When evidence was found of Amy sending her patients to the drugstore to buy quantities of arsenic, the police were able to arrest and convict her. So she was quite the character. And um, that is what, it, obviously it was big news because it got to become a play. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what do you think of this movie? I think it's awesome. I think it's worth a watch. <laughs> oh, I know you do. You gotta, but why? You gotta, you gotta, it's, it's, it's smart and it's funny, but it's, Funny in double entendres and funny and, and not sexually, but just double meanings and um, it it's smart funny. It's it's not just funny to be funny. And the to watch these actors and actresses, even knowing that there was tumultuous relationships in the background, you wouldn't know it watching the film. And and just to see how they played their character in so brilliantly, and then they mesh together so well. You could just see that these ants raised this man, and um, you could see that they had raised Jonathan, but had fear of him. Um, it, the whole thing, it, the acting to me was was brilliant. It should have been given more accolades than it was. Um, very smart writing. What do you think about? I mean, what what are your thoughts? Well, I really like this movie. Um, I like a lot of older movies anyway. I like black and white movies. It takes me back to a different time and era, um, long before color and all that. Uh, I just I, I like the the look of it. Um, I think Cary Grant, outstanding performance. He may not have liked this movie, but I really liked his performance in this movie. But my favorite, I have to uh, probably Ann Abbey, uh, Josephine Hull. Uh, I thought she did a fantastic job bringing that character from the stage to the screen, and then Peter Lorre. I mean, just an awesome performance as Dr. Einstein. I mean, and you know, the way he talks, you know, doctor. He, he just reminds me of doctor. You know what I mean? Um, Elaine Brewster, you know, Priscilla Elaine, she, she's just a doll. I mean, she's just Beautiful. cute. Um, Raymond Massey as Jonathan Brewster, he did okay. I just really wish we could have seen Boris Karloff. Uh, not that Massey did a bad job, but I think... It might have made a more of an impact if Karloff would have been there. I wonder what the numbers would have been if Karloff would have been in place instead of him uh, for this movie. For for me, it's a must-see. Um, you will be highly entertained. And not only that, but it's uh, actually a wholesome film that you can sit down and watch with your family and not really have to worry about any nudity, any language, anything. Um, well, except for the deaths of the 13 bodies in the basement. But, but I mean, it's, 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 it's more of a laugh-out-loud comedy um, than, that your whole family can enjoy and not just, you know, what we're so used to today as horror-slash-comedy that people think that they need to be in movies that doesn't have to be in there. So 
Well, Sarah, I thank you for coming on the podcast. Okay. I hope you enjoyed your time yes. with me tonight um, as we're recording this. Um, looks like you had fun. You knocked it out of the park. Um, like I told everybody, you're a perfectionist and you wanted to make sure uh, because we got a little lost the first time we did this. With the, He's like, I'm going back and rewatching this movie and I'm taking bullet points and notes and outlines. I said, Sarah, whatever you want to do. I said, they know our podcast isn't perfect. They know we mess up all the time. We call it Terrence. We Terrence something. Um, but thank you for coming on. And, and we'll, people, if you liked her, let us know on the Facebook group or send me an email. Um, she, she likes to know how she did. Um, so let us let me know how she did, and I'll pass on the message to her. Um, but Sarah, thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me. It was a blast, and this movie, there's a lot going on. So I think that's why we kind of bumbled up the first time, because it's just like so right. much to keep in. Especially the ending. When they all start coming in, it's just, it's just, it's hard to watch. I mean, it's not hard to watch. It's hard to keep track of everything that's going on, because there's so much movement and so many people, and just trying to keep everybody in their place. Well, I think this episode's coming to a close. Um, you can join our Facebook group on the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Um, you can reach out to me at www.thetragedyofcinema.gmail.com. Um, you can find us on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Um, so uh, Terrence and Kyle, we were going to record today, um, but due to some uh, the coronavirus and some maybe close contact that one of us may have had, I decided to go ahead and push it off till next week. Um, that way I don't want to be the reason that somebody takes it to their family member. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we went ahead and, and just, I told him, Hey, we'll just go ahead and record next week. So luckily Sarah was able to come in and record this day. So we can get something out this week. Um, so don't forget, we also have our, uh, tragedy of some of the twilight zone series going on with Mr. ADZ, Eric Cummings. Uh, so be sure to, uh, join in for that. So Sarah, are you ready for your big finale? All right. So that's a wrap on this episode. Sarah, take it away. That's a wrap. No. I got it no, we. I already wrapped it. And, and cut. Oh, you got to oh, cut I it. I messed it up. <laughs> She's like, I'm ready. I'm ready. So, so, okay, we'll try it again. And that's a wrap on this episode. And Sarah, take it and away. And cut. <laughs>